My name is Eugene Lipov. I'm a physician who started using Stellar Ganglion Block to treat PTSD and control the overactive sympathetic system, fight and flight system. We're going to be talking about that in the show as well as the impact on the mind and body that it does and what can be done about it and a way to reverse PTSD in 10 or 15 minutes. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Curiosity Bites. We're at part two of our interview with Dr. Eugene Lipov. Um, he is a doctor that very few people know much about. He has discovered what might be the greatest innovation since uh, Jonas Salk announced that he discovered a test to for the vaccine as a vaccine for the polio virus. He has transforming lives of those who've been suffering through what is known as PTSD. You can find out more about him at eraseptsdnow.org. We've been talking about in the first part of this what PTSD is and how actually it's an injury that we need to examine and how we need to treat it quite differently. We talked about the hardware versus the software. The software is what therapists, uh, people like myself, have been able to understand what's driving the human mind around certain things, including trauma. But as uh, Dr. Lipov was explaining to us, that there is a real understanding that there's a hardware problem that's been ignored and that without looking at that hardware problem, the software won't work if part of the machinery is not working. So I want to come back into here because we talked about PTSD, we've talked about the hardware and the software, and there's not usually a crossover in those two worlds. We, we tend to think about, well, you're in the hardware department, that would be brain, uh, uh, brain sciences, and then psychological software or soft skills. And, and anesthesiology definitely is something that's about a hardware thing. Uh, like I said, PTSD is usually a psychiatric or psychologist who would take care of that. How did you find yourself in that area? How did talk a little bit, of, give our background on so people understand how you came to suddenly be in the PTSD world? Uh, that's a totally fair question. So um, we need to go back to where I start using Stellar Ganglion Block for something that's not typical. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing Stellar Ganglion Block since 1988 for CRPR, so burning of the arm primarily. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I had a patient that had severe hot flashes who I took care of her neck pain. And then she also had hot flashes. So I sent her to my brother who's an internist. And I said, please fix it. I, I don't deal with that. So he tried and he, nothing worked. So he said, you know, you do this thing, you do stellar ganglion block for burning arm why don't we do stellar ganglion block for somebody who has hot flashes or burning um, everywhere? Mm -hmm. I said, uh, that's weird. He said, ah, try it, see what happens. Mm -hmm. So we had a long discussion, whatever. I tried it and it worked really well. And then I did a couple more people and I did really, really well. So at that point, I realized there was something that was actually working. And then so, so hold on, I need to pause you for a moment. So, sure. so you're talking about doing it for hot flushes, which is yep. seen as a hormonal response. Correct. Right. Um, but you're using a, uh, a technology that is used for pain relief. 
traditionally. Yes, sir. So how did you even get to, because when you told me that last time, I was like, well, how do you make that jump? How do you go this, you know, because it seems like a completely different, that's like, let's patch the hole in the floor because <laughs> the roof's leaking. <laughs> I love that. I love that analogy. Uh, well, first of all, I was not the one who made that leap. That was my brother. Right. My brother is really smart. <laughs> Much smarter than I am, for sure. But he, his reasoning was uh, CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, is a burning arm. Yep. So he envisioned hot flashes as a burning arm for the whole burning body. So if you're mm -hmm. burning body and burning arm is the same thing. So the right. treatment can be the same. That's how, that's the leap. But, it, but the burning arm is, is seen as a nervous, as a nerve response, isn't it? Yes, the CRPS has always been thought of as a peripheral injury. So let's say somebody has a crush injury yeah. or a burn, and now the nerves here do something and they start to burn. Right. So that's different than the butt, than hot flushes, which seems to be hormonal. It, it just I'm like I'm I'm fascinated. Like when you told me that, I was fascinated about that leap. It was like, okay. Well, the reason he was able to make the leap is because he didn't know any better. <laughs> so ignorance no idea gave him innovation. Work. Ignorant yeah, innovation. He had, he had no idea it's not going to work. <laughs> I, I, I knew for a fact that it wouldn't work, but I said, well, I'll try it because the patient wanted to try it. Right. And I was like, that makes no sense to me. Mm. And only later did I figure out that CRPS, so in fact, I wrote an article that explained, we'll pull it all together. If you don't sure. mind, I'm just going to keep going forward. Yeah, please. So we were able to publish on it and we had really good results. And then Chicago Tribune wanted to write an article about us, which I thought was really nice. Um, so, and they were very nice, very sweet until the article came out. So when, during the article, I knew I was in trouble when I read the first line of our major newspaper in Chicago. It says, Bianca Kennedy, this breast cancer survivor, was so desperate to get hot flesh relief, she let Dr. Lipa plunge a syringe needle into her neck. And it went downhill from there. So the head of gynecology in Northwestern basically said, that's irrational, there's no reason to do it. Whatever other places people said, you don't know how it works, so it's garbage. Yes, it's working, but you don't know how it works, so it's unnecessary or bad to do or so on. So when they said that, did that mean that they were assuming it was a placebo response? They didn't explain it. They basically said, yes, it seems to be working, but you don't know how it works. So so we're just writing it off. That's it. That, wow. that, was, it. that, that was the summary. So wow. that made me quite upset, shall we say. <laughs> that shall led, we say. <laughs> shall we say. That led me to read a large number of papers, anything related to weird use of stellar ganglion block, because I know it was working. The patients were getting better, mm -hmm. but I didn't, I, I was the first one to admit, I don't know how it works. Right. That gave me a lot of encouragement, tried to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I came across a paper from Finland where they were doing T2 clipping. Basically you have to go into the chest, pull the yep. lung out of the way and clip fight and flights fibers in the chest for hand sweats. For hand yeah. sweats, okay. Right. And they found the hand sweating stopped, but also PTSD stopped. I was like, what? 
that makes well, they got sense. PTSD relief without trying for PTSD correct. Uh, when they were actually uh, trying to help with the hand sweats. Correct. I see. They never explained it and they said it's working, but whatever. So That's same thing. It's working, but we don't know why. We don't know why. It, right. That was in 1998 was the paper. Mm -hmm. So I read the paper. It was a great paper. It was a great interest. And I thought that that may have something to do with what we're doing. I have no idea. So anyway, so then I did some more research. Turns out the ganglion T2, those nerves now become stellate going up in the neck. And then I found the paper where they did rabies virus injection in the rats and they found there's a connection from stellate to the amygdala in the brain. I see. So then I started to put it together. So then I, I went to talk to my wife and I said, hey, it seems to be working. Stellate seems to work for pain. So I know this. Half flashes, okay. And now PTSD. She goes, no way. One thing can have all those effects. Right. So that so that led me to a paper, which I stole a concept from Einstein. It's called Unified Theory of Stellar Gangland Block. I, that, so. that was on my list to talk to you about because I love unified theory. And so it was like, can you not? okay. I was like, ooh, I'm jumping on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what I was trying to explain, I was trying to look for commonalities between CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, PTSD and health flashes, right? So I was trying to combine the three. Right. So here, here's the commonality. So, and the reason it's really cool that we're doing it now is because it's a time of functional MRIs and other scans. So we can actually see what, what the machinery is doing. So it turns out that amygdala is what controls PTSD, clearly. Mm. Insular cortex, which is right next to the amygdala and affects the amygdala, is what's hyperactivated during CRPS or half flashes. Mm -hmm. But the same part of the brain controls that. So if you look at the insular cortex, frankly, I went to medical school in 1984. So I didn't even remember insular cortex or amygdala. You know, that's not piece yeah. I was interested in. Anyway, so it turns out if you do light touch to CRPS, which is burning of the hand, insular cortex lights up. Wow. So if a woman's having hot flush, you can actually see insular cortex light, lights up. Insular cortex job is to send the information about pain and heat to the rest of the brain. Hmm. Kind of interesting. Yeah. So then once I knew that, then I looked at the, the, the rabies virus study where they connected from the stellar ganglion to the insular cortex and the amygdala. So I knew there was a hard connection there. Mm -hmm. And then it gets even more interesting. So you said half flashes is hormonal. It's really not fight and flight or anything to do with that, right? Well, it's the general thought process. It's yeah. the general thought, which yeah. is totally reasonable. Mm -hmm. Except, turns out, estrogen is sympathetic, meaning it reduces fight and flight. Uh, of course. And this, let me tell you how you know this. As women get older, estrogen goes down because yeah. ovaries don't produce as much. But if you give estrogen back, the blood pressure, which goes up as people get older, goes down. So estrogen actually reduces, reduces fight and flight system as well. Mm. So that was a commonality. So fight and flight seems to be involved in all of those three conditions. PTSD, 
half flashes and pain, CRPS pain it is. Wow. So that, that's a unified theory. So that's how I got to the explanation of it. You know, as you, as you say all this to me, Eugene, I can't help but think how many more applications there are that we've not even thought of yet. You know, again, you know, we're patching the floor for the leak in the roof and it works. I love that analogy. Right. But it works. So um, it's kind of like an Asher. We're living in an Asher house. We patch the floor and the roof stops <laughs> leaking, right? Because it's an Asher painting. Um, so I love that. But, but there's, you know, like even understanding something like uh, hot flushes, which are generally thought of as being hormonal and realizing, oh, this can treat this. Um, PS, PTSD, which is thought of as being purely psychological, we can treat this. These applications, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you're way ahead of me on it, but I can't help but go, I wonder what else is directly impacted by that ganglion, right? How that is. Well, I, I can give you some thoughts on in loops. Sure, please. please. Um, and again, keep in mind, I have not published on this. So no, I, I understand. can't be quite be as specific. But one of the things, if you look at the insular cortex, it does some interesting things. It controls all addiction. <laughs> so when you somebody- You where gets, I was gonna go. <laughs> uh -huh. So when somebody gets, go gambling, right? And they pull the lever, insular cortex lights up. It's yep. really interesting. Yeah. So there was a study done, and I'll tell you how it came to that. It's kind of interesting. Uh, in nature, they looked at 47 people who were heavy smokers who had strokes of insular cortex. The next day after the stroke, they forgot to smoke. No withdrawals, just stop smoking. Wow. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. So if I assume that if I do a stellar ganglion block and takes away, if it affects insular cortex and stellar ganglion block should take away smoking's interest. Mm -hmm. So we did it on about 50 people and a lot of people got markedly better. What I found weird about it is that they had no withdrawals. That they is also, fascinating. Isn't that cool? The other part is we've treated at least 10 people who were like heavy drinkers. One of the people specifically stands out in my mind was a um, SEAL lieutenant mm -hmm. that was drinking two liters of vodka per day. Two liters. Wow. We did sell it. He stopped cold turkey, no problem. Which is really weird. So, the, I mean, right there, that brings up a whole just plethora of questions because um again so now we've got okay it blocks that part changes that okay so now we've got the no addiction but but now we go to this other piece which is well hold on a second if the cells if the cells receptors are built for that addiction and the cells receptors don't get the, the whatever the substance is then the cells go like this gimme 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 Right. And that's called your withdrawal response. Right. But now the cells cells are not going, gimme, 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 because you're not but having a withdrawal response. I think they are, but there is a higher level ah. that controls. That's I would love to study that. And again, if I had the resource, I would study it because there must be a higher level to withdrawals. Yes. Because the simplicity of 
nicotine patches, which is a immense industry. The whole concept, if you don't replace a nicotine, you're going to have withdrawals. But I've right. seen a number of people have no withdrawals. And some people literally, I mean, we know this, right? I mean, at least uh, from, you know, not, not, not hard science, but just from stories that people, there are people who just quit and never have any withdrawals. We do right. know that after 20 years, they just never have withdrawals. Other people have withdrawals. I mean, my mother smoked all her life. She hasn't smoked for the last three years because she has lung cancer. Um, and she misses it every day. I mean, my mother well, sucks on it, sucks on an empty pen every day. She pretends she's I, smoking. I got to tell you, my father stopped smoking after 40 years of smoking. He was a horrible person to deal with. Yeah. He was mean as hell. Right. So not you know, credit. <laughs> no. So it's so it's it's a fascinating thing that, you know, again, it's not an absolute. Some people go through withdrawal. Some people don't. And yet there is this system, something that's happening in the system that you're talking about that is, a, that is somewhere an intermediary between the cell receptors saying, gimme, gimme, gimme the substance uh, uh, and the, um, the uh, mood and appetite center of the brain producing the, the chemical ca uh, cascade that's feeding that is suddenly something is interrupted there. The, 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 the cells go, eh, fine, I don't need that. That is like right there. Like I said, when I, you know, when you talked to me about it, I thought this has got so many more implications because again, if you look at the latest work into addictions, we know that addictions are not what we thought they were. For years, we looked, at what, looked around and we judged the people who had addictions as being weak or whatever it was. And now we know through the work of people like uh, Gabor Mate and other great uh, researchers that actually addiction comes down to one simple thing, and that's community. If you don't feel you have a community, if you're not held in a community, the likelihood of you going in a path of addiction is vastly raised, vastly raised. And that um, addicts hang out with addicts because they have a community. And that what, what put most of us into addictive behaviors was this need to belong because human beings need to belong. We are tribal. There's a neurochemical, biological response to belonging. So now we go, hold on a second. That's even interrupted. That is, I mean, with this, that is mind-blowing. That's a whole other level of this. Right. Now we're talking about, because now we could look at it in the same way and say, well, all right, so is addiction PTSD? Well, we know that some of that is. Well, so he, here's the, here's the thing about it. So I, when I used to be a Cook County resident, I got to deal with a lot of people who were addicts. Yeah. Uh, and then I think one of the things to remember, I think a lot of people use drugs being alcohol, being cocaine, whatever to, to drown their sorrow. Yeah. Right. They're not just taking for a swim. They're trying to drown. it. So the point is, I think if you can reduce the fight and fly this extreme discomfort then you don't need to smoke no you don't need to drink yourself into a stupor you can actually go to sleep by closing your eyes instead of having a gallon of whiskey right but you know the, the one of my central philosophies in in and i teach it to every leader i work with and i say it on it almost every show i'm on 
is the thing to remember, you know, we talk about empathy and we talk about compassion and, and, and these are nice words to throw around, but at a, at a very cognitive level the, the, as a behavior, the thing to remember is everybody's trying to feel better. And what I mean by that is, I don't care if you are, if you're the Dalai Lama, I don't care if you're a mass murderer or anything in between, everybody's trying to feel better. We've all got our coping mechanisms to try and feel better. The day was stressful in some way, shape or form. My day may not be stressful to you, but your day may not be stressful to me. It's subjective. And we're all trying to feel better. So we, you know, we have a rum and Coke, we smoke a cigarette, we do a line of Coke, we smoke a joint, we, we binge out on Netflix. We're all trying to feel better. Just the addict is, is, is they're trying to feel better over a bigger thing for them. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But part of that is an adrenal response. Part of that is feeling like, oh my God, how do I cope? Because feeling better means it's a coping mechanism. Whether the coping mechanism is praying or going to church or meditating or whatever it is, it's still a coping mechanism, which is an addictive response. So if I'm coping from a level of trauma and stress, this may be a massive answer. Potentially. I mean, that, 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 that is exactly right. So, and the interesting thing, if you like back to kind of epigenetics, you can yes. actually predict people who are vulnerable. So a lot of the stuff you don't need to do necessarily a brain scan. You can do a simple DNA test and find out which genes have been changed. And then you can see who they are. And if you can actually have a foresight to deal with that, the effect on our psychiatric system and our side as a whole could be amazing. So talk to us more about the epigenetics because that's a, certainly a subject I, I am in love with um, because as I talked about a few minutes ago, the primacy of DNA is the idea, for those of you not sure, is the idea that you are determined by your DNA. That theory has been blown out of the water we, because we now know the DNA, like the brain. I mean, when I was a kid, I was told the brain you're born with is the brain you die with. And if you drink alcohol, you'll kill brain cells and it will never recover. Now we know that's not true. There's something called brain plasticity. Your brain changes neurons that fire together, wire together, and your brain is constantly in a flux and change all the rest of it. But we also know that about DNA now and primacy of DNA as in fixed is, is not true this epigenetic response. So talk to us about epigenetics in this context so that people can really grasp what this might mean for them and that they're not stuck. Because what I love about this, I just want to tell you, Eugene, is this is hope. This is hope for the hopeless. Dude. That's what I'm actually, sorry, I get a bit verklempt at this. Um, this is why it emotionally hits me. Because I've met and worked with people, uh, I did work with street people and all the rest of it uh, voluntarily, who have no hope, who have been to therapists, who have taken the right drugs, who have done all the right things. And it's like their, their, their words are, I'm just fucked up. I'm just broken and I can't be fixed. And there is no hope. And so I know because I've been suicidal in my life, and I often, and I treated suicide people and, and talked about it and said, you know, people say, oh, what a waste of life. And I say, you know, you're, you're looking at it through your lenses saying, why? 
they're looking at it from a sense of why not? It's just relief because they're broken. And you're, what this work is doing is returning hope because there are high-functioning people like the person we talked about that we both know who are incredibly successful. And I honestly believe, I'll talk about it in the next section, that most high-functioning people are traumatized, but we'll get to that in a minute. But there are a lot of people who are very traumatized, who are very low-functioning and feel hopeless. So you're returning hope, and that's what I just think find overwhelming in this. Well, that, that, that is true. Well, so let me just give you a little background and I, I totally agree with that. Um, so my mother killed herself when I was an intern. So that's part of the reason I have so much interest in effective therapeutics for depression, suicidology and things like that. Mm-hmm. So hope, I think that's the key. You're right. If there's no hope, then why are you living? And it's too painful to live. And you, because most people think if you are in this state right now, you're going to be like this the rest of your life. And they look down the road 30 more years. It's like, why am I doing this? It's too painful. Right. So when you're talking about the epigenetics of it and talking about looking, taking a DNA test, talk to us a little bit about what you're looking for. We'll go back to that. Yeah. So anyway, so I have a biochemistry degree from 1984, 1980, I'm sorry. Epigenetics was not around then. That's only about 15, 20 years max. So the whole idea is that DNA, as you said, was static. Mm-hmm. The only way to change DNA was to have a mutation. Let's say radi- radiation, change mutation, things like that. What we're finding is epigenetics basically outside the DNA or change that could be uh, the idea behind epigenetics is the body is designed to respond to the environment you're in. Again, back to the caveman. If you're yeah, a caveman yeah. and you're surrounded by wolves, you want to be able to respond to that and sleep with one eye open. Not only you, but your children and your grandchildren. So there is a, I wrote a paper on that actually in 2019. You know, it's a pretty boring paper for lay people. However, <laughs> bottom line was I read a paper from Walter Reed where they found that the part of the brain or the part of the DNA that controls um, NGF, nerve growth factor, and I'm going to explain yep. how that works, is a part that changed in PTSD. So I, I have to kind of explain that more of that. But the bottom line is there is a specific gene that seems to control the fight and flight system response. And when somebody has a DNA change like that, let's say from the parents or grandparents, and they're much more vulnerable to have this happen. So the way it looks like in the real world, if somebody comes from a hard childhood, let's say you have two seals, one comes from a great childhood, another one not good at all, or they're being beaten, starved, whatever, and then they get exposed to the same trauma. The one who had childhood trauma the chance to develop PTSD is markedly higher than the ones who did not. And the biology of that is explained by this VEL66 VEL change. You can actually measure that. So just for a moment. So so let's imagine somebody's applying to be a SEAL. Yep. And you did that test. What would happen? 
Well, a lot of SEALs actually had childhood trauma. So that's, that's what not, I was going to go to. So that's really not my decision. However, what I would do though is if you know they have a tensity over that, I would monitor them closer, maybe do functional MRIs once a year. And if they develop PTSD, maybe do stellar ganglion block. That's what I would do. Because the interesting thing about it is, and again, we'll go to it in the next part, but high functioning people with trauma, right? And, and I, that's a, a where I, what I want to highlight in the next piece, which is high functioning, high performance people who are actually driven by that trauma. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating area for me. Um, and, and I'll talk about it in the context of what I call dragon fire in, in that section. But when you're looking at this now, can you, if you do that DNA test on somebody now, uh, do you see that response in them? Is, is it there? Is there, is there a way to go? Oh, that's what that is. That's, that's epigenetic response to your childhood. I mean, is it that clear? Well, you're assuming I have a huge university around me with infinite funds. I don't have the, I have a lot of ideas. Not yet. We're trying to help you with that. that. (laughs) And I appreciate it. And I highly appreciate it. Now I have some updates and new study that I found an amazing partner. in. But if you don't mind, I want to step back and I want to explain what I said about the VEL 66 VEL. Yes, please. So if you look what PTSD is, so PTSD is what, what, here's what happens. And this is based on a lot of studies out there. When there is severe trauma, fight and flight system gets overactivated and something called NGF, nerve growth factor is produced. Yeah. That nerve growth factor is produced in the brain and is carried over to sympathetic ganglia, stellar ganglion. Once it hits the stellar ganglion, it activates extra growth of fight and flight uh, nerves in the brain. It's called sprouting, oh. like leaves, right? Wow. So you have extra nerve actually has been shown in uh, rats. As long as you have this extra growth, it increases norepinephrine levels around the brain. That's been shown in humans by actually taking fluid around the brain and analyzing it. Mm-hmm. In order to maintain this extra nerve growth, you need to have NGF, nerve growth factor. Yes. And it persists. So it turns out if you put local anesthetic in a ganglia, it turns off the NGF and it leads to the loss of those sympathetic fibers. That's called pruning. The fibers die back. Go back to normal and norepinephrine goes down again. Wow. So if you understand that, then let's go back to the epigenetics. So VEL66VEL gene controls the NGF. If you have too much NGF, you're much easier for you to grow new, new nerve fibers in the brain. Not a good thing. Theoretically, and again, I don't know, but theoretically, it may be pretty clear. There are other tests you can do besides DNA. You can do an abrupt like jump test. And that seems to show the reactivity of sympathetic fibers, but the DNA theoretically can predict who's going to develop it or not. And it doesn't have to be the same generation. It could be grandparent. That's crazy. Not crazy. It's fantastic. So, so in the context of that, we know that the, 
the dominant focus of maturation of the brain starts on the right side for the first year. We know that the right brain has more connections to the body and into the autonomic nervous system. Um, the, the hypothalamus, the mood and appetite center, um, when you're applying the, the stellar blocker um, treatment, is it more impactful for it to be delivered on the right side because that's the earliest, if, for somebody who had early childhood trauma? Uh, I would say the opposite, actually. So, oh, okay, cool. I've been doing right side primarily because in the in the beginning, uh, left side failed. It didn't work as well. Oh. And then when you look at the work of doctors, um, Israel Librazon, he was doing brain scans in 1980s, and he found right side the amygdala seems to be more active in PTSD. Hmm. So that's why I've been doing primarily right side. However. What at least my reading is that the left side of left amygdala is more active in if there's childhood trauma. Left side of the amygdala is more impacted if there was childhood trauma. Right. That's that's my understanding. Wow. At least I found some articles such as that. There seem to be a difference. Right. Uh, so what we've been doing recently, we switched to if the right side does not work, then we go back and do the left side. So back to the individual you and I have been talking about. Yeah. So he had the right side that helped him a lot. Yes. But the left side that he had actually today, he said the intensity of the impact is significantly higher than the right side. Now we're. So do you always do one side at a time? Yes. Or do you ever not... do two, both sides? You don't want to do both sides. That no. clinically it's bad because in a small percentage of people, you can numb up a nerve in the neck. Right. And I can close the vocal cords. So we oh. don't want that. No. So one vocal cord, okay. Two, not okay. No. So some people have done both sides bilateral. That's really not cool. Right. So that's 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 kind of fascinating. So that, that leads us perfectly to the end of this section and part two of our, of our amazing interview here with Dr. Eugene Lipoff. And uh, I am so grateful this, this is this is delicious, um, in case you don't know. Um, if you are at all interested in PTSD, if you know anybody who has PTSD or suspects to have PTSD, please share this, uh, this particular episode of Curiosity Bites with them because we have got here somebody who is on the absolute cutting edge. And I know that you're working with psychologists like Dr. Sh Dr. Shauna uh, Springer and doing Absolutely. great work with, with military. Um, and I know that you've been brought in by, uh, with, uh, through, uh, the, through Congress to, to give uh, evidence and all the rest of it on, uh, the impact on vets and all the rest of it. So this is this is powerful work, and I really encourage you to share it with everybody else. I hope we'll see you in part three of this this show. Stay tuned. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs>